What's distracting you from God? You've probably thought of something. Um, You may not have. Um, Today, we're going to talk about paying attention to God. Um, And as someone with attention deficit disorder, it's kind of funny to me. (laughs) I didn't take my medicine today on purpose so that we could uh, really get the full experience of being distracted together. Um, I was diagnosed with uh, attention deficit disorder at the age of like six or seven. Um, Probably should have been earlier. Uh, It was clear from the very get-go. I'm just kind of all over the place. And um, I was having uh, lunch with somebody, and uh, on our way out, or no, it was dinner with somebody. It was on the way out of the restaurant. I said, oh, my keys. Where are my keys? So I went back, and they were on the table. Like, okay. Walked out, and as I'm walking out, the server goes, hey, did you leave the bill somewhere? And I was like, okay. Hold on. The most logical place to check was in the diaper bag. So I went to the diaper bag. I said, oh, I put it in the diaper bag. I'm sorry. I just grabbed stuff. I put the check in the diaper bag. Okay, so this is the kind of like, kind of all over the place thing that happens. And I think, gosh, in the world that we live in, how easy is it for us to just kind of be all over the place, right? Like we're just a frantic, frenetic sort of culture, and we can get distracted so easily, get distracted so easily from the kinds of things that matter most in life, the kinds of things that uh, we need to be doing, the things of God that we need to be paying attention to, the Word of God. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Jeremiah chapter 17. Book of Jeremiah, it's kind of just past the middle. It's in the Old Testament. Jeremiah is one of the major prophets Um, really a big book. I think it's the longest book by word count in the Bible, so you should be able to find it. Um, Chapter 17 is really fascinating, um, and I love this this passage. We're going to go through line by line here, and then I've got a little bit of surprise uh, halfway through the sermon here. We're going to do a little activity together. It'll be fun. Okay, all in. So go to to chapter 17, and this is what was just read um, here So here we are, chapter 17, the second reading we had. Let's start and let's read this together. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, it will be up here, or I'd encourage you to maybe uh, grab your your phone or whatever app that you might use. So here here it starts. God is speaking out, um, and if you go, you have to go before this verse because the chapter breaks are are kind of a modern thing. Like when this was written, there wasn't a chapter. It was just a continuous prophecy. And it says, therefore, behold, I will make them know this once I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. That's the end of the, it's the, end of the previous chapter. God's talking about how he shall make uh, Judah, Israel, the nations know that he is God. And then it says, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. Pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. Really interesting. So there's a lot of imagery, metaphor, stuff going on here. There's some Old Testament um, intertextuality, wordplay. So here we go. Um, What would you, what kind of material would the heart have to be made of to be written on with a point of diamond, with a pen of iron? It's not fleshy, is it? It has to be hard. To have to use such a hard writing utensil, you're talking about a surface that has to really be dug into. Okay? The harder your surface, the harder your bit has to be. People who cut metal use diamond saws, that kind of thing. So this, this, um, th- this heart that is hard, this heart that has, has turned to stone and is no longer flesh, is being written on with a pen of iron and with a point of diamond. 
and it's happening on the horns of their altars. We'll go back and talk about what that is. But this tablet of the heart, this stone tablet of the heart, kind of reminds us of the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. When Moses uh, helped lead the people out by God's power through the Red Sea away from uh, Egypt, they went up on uh, Mount Sinai. And what did God do? God, using his finger, which is a, a fleshy metaphor, right, writes on tablets of stone his word, his law. And this isn't law like uh, the civil law that we're on now, where it's like, hey, if you go over 55, yada, yada. No, this is like, this is the way of life I'm laying out for you as a people for flourishing. You've just come out of slavery where you had to follow all the rules of the slave masters who didn't love you, who used you, who abused you. I'm bringing you out as your father, as your savior, as your Lord, as the one who has heard your cries and is fulfilling my promises to you and to your, um, your ancestors that I made, that you would be a great nation, that I would bring you into the land. Now, since I'm bringing you out as my people, here's the best way to live. Blessed is the man who follows in these rules. If we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. It's, uh, it's the second telling of the law after they've traveled through the wilderness for 40 years because they were not obeying God. And as they're about to go into the land, Moses is telling them in chapter 6 verse 1, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. So this is the kind of the way of life that you're supposed to live in this land. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, your offspring. So like this is not just for like a one-time thing, but this is let's remember, let's pass this on, let's make this what marks our people generation to generation by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. May be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may be blessed, right? That you may experience life as I've intended it as your God, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And so then he goes on to say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, might, that these words that I command you shall be on your heart. Where should they be? Say it again. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. These words that I command you shall be written on your heart. They were written on tablets of stone. Now let them be written on you. May you be turned into the thing that you're reading. Okay. You shall then, since they're written on your heart, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. So make these a topic of conversation. When you lie down, when you rise, morning and evening, bind them as a front or as a sign on your hand. How often do you look at your hand every day? Kind of a lot, right? Every time you look at it, oh, that's why you like write reminders on your hand. Or at least I do. They shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. Can you see what's between your eyes normally? No, who does? Someone else. We're reminding one another, aren't we? We're reminding one another of what matters. Okay, you shall bind them between your eyes. You shall write them where? On the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So every time you leave your house, 
Every time you leave your city, every time you come back into your city and come back into your house, you're reminded. So there's all these reminders. Let's remember, let's remember, let's remember. Okay, so back to Jeremiah 17. Look what happens. The sin of Judah, which is idolatry, which is abandoning God, which is going after false gods, has been written not with a pen of flesh, with the finger of God, the gentle hand of a father, but it's been carved in with a hard, grating tool on a heart of stone. And it's no longer the law of God that's written on their hearts, but it's their sin. And it's on the horn of their altars. What's that? The horns of the altars are where they were supposed to apply the blood of the sacrifice to atone for, the, for, for their sins, to, to receive forgiveness, to, to uh, have access to God. And so what was an instrument of their salvation is now an instrument of their judgment because their sin is on the very thing that they ought to be using for worshiping God. Their sin and their way of life has actually infected their worship now and not just the rest of their life. What is this sin? Their children, here's the deal. They didn't teach their children the law of God. Here's what their children remember. It says, while their children remember their altars and their asherim, beside every green tree and on the high hills. What is this? Their altars and their ashram. When the people of Israel went into the land of Canaan, uh, what we know as Israel, the land of Canaan, there were all kinds of different people groups there who were worshiping false gods, who were worshiping idols, pagans. And these pagans were putting up these high places or go on these high places and build altars and there would offer sacrifices. They would sacrifice their children they would sacrifice animals and grain and, and, and pour out drink libations. Um, there were, um, I'm trying to be uh, modest in the way that we say this, but the, the ashram, these uh, symbols of female fertility, there were rites that were performed there at these symbols of female fertility in order to connect with the gods that were um, explicit. So child sacrifice, explicit uh, idol worship, all these things were happening, and, and God's saying, get that out of the land, and let's get after the kind of life that, that promotes flourishing, where people are safe. That's a light to the nation. So this kind of stuff is not happening anymore because it's wrong. It's evil. And God did not design the world to work this way. Well, Israel, instead of being a light, instead of having the law of God on their hearts, instead of going in the way, they get distracted. They get allured. They get pulled to the side. And they begin to imitate what's around them. Rather than being a light, pushing it out, they end up doing that which they were supposed to reject. And so what do their children remember? Their children's knowledge is like, well, of course there's ashram standing up. Of course that's what we do. Of course it's, it affects our worship. Of course these things are around. And then they go, into the, they go into the temple of God as if nothing's wrong. Because the temple's still set up in Jerusalem. So God is calling out in these first two verses saying, instead of what was supposed to be, this is what's going on. You've exchanged the way that I've uh, designed things to go, and you've turned it into sin, and you've made it your own thing. This is why he then says in verse 5, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Literally, literally makes uh, his strength uh, his, his firmness, right? His, like, his confidence. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. On the contrary, what God had promised is that the person who trusts in the Lord, who trusts in him, would be like a tree 
planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, by the canal, by the waterway in this dry place. Ignoring God, ignoring the speech of God, ignoring what God has given us for the sake of other things leads to a life marked by uh, uh, scarcity, by loneliness, lack of life, death. The life that's committed to God, the life that trusts in the Lord, the life that pays attention to what God has said, the life that, that remembers what God has said, is marked by life, by flourishing. Now, note what's not said, not said here. It might be on the first reading, it might be like, okay, things are good when you're trusting God, things are bad when you're not trusting God. But look what it says. He's like a shrub in the desert in verse 6. The one who turns away from God is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. Other translations will say, shall not see the good when it comes. It literally, in Hebrew, is shall, he will not see, he will not see when it comes good. He shall not see it when it comes. So even when the good things happen, so the riches that Israel had, God's taking away. Jesus says this in the sermon on the plain that we just read, that if you're wealthy, you've already received your gift, and what's coming is judgment. And if you're poor, blessed are you because yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's not the material things around you that determine your spiritual well-being. And so even when the good things come, those who reject the Lord are actually uh, not experiencing them as good. They're still within themselves, within their spirit, within their heart, they're experiencing parchness and dryness. And then look what it says in verse 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. Great, I'm drinking water. I'm putting out leaves. I'm putting out fruit. Oh no, does not fear when the heat comes. Okay, so it's not a guarantee that everything's perfect. It's a guarantee that you have life. And that through the heat, that through the trial, your leaves remain green. Um, we have our own ashram in our culture. We have our own idols that are set up all around us that are just commonplace. And in fact, it creeps into our worship. God is calling out to the Israelites saying, don't you remember? Don't you remember that I, I took you out of slavery? Don't you remember that I'm the God who loved you? and saved you? And these idols that are made of wood that you literally had to pick up and carry and put on their pedestal, you're bowing down to them and you're sacrificing your children to them? Is that really better? You want that engraved on your heart and on your worship? That's what God's saying. And look at us. Don't you remember what Jesus did? Don't you remember the cross? Don't, don't we remember this God who created all things? Who judged sin in his son so that we might live? Who rose him from the dead? Who gives us victory? Don't we remember this? And then we say, oh, that's not that big of a deal. And we're distracted. I'm distracted. A thousand times I've failed. His mercy remains. But a thousand times I've failed and I get distracted. So what are we to do about it? What are we to do about the fact that 
We exchange what God intends for the things that the world and what man intend. That we, we write sin on our hearts rather than writing God's law on our hearts. That we don't attend to and remember the things of God, but we attend to and remember the things of the world. Do our children know the lyrics of Disney movies better than they know the Ten Commandments? Do we know song lyrics uh, on the radio better than we know hymns? It's, it's a challenge for us all. There's a quote here that I want to share with you from John Webster. Um, he, he applies, he talks about paying attention to Holy Scripture. Can you put that up, please? And um, this is what Israel needed. This is what Israel needed, and I think this is what we need. In an age of distraction, in an age of, of um, competing desires, competing interests, we need holy attention. He says this, the Christian act of reading Holy Scripture is to be characterized by a certain exclusiveness. A deliberate laying aside of attention to the text and an equally deliberate laying aside of other concerns. Let's pause there. If we come to read Holy Scripture, if we come to pay attention to God, if we come to pray, if we come to worship, we have to first deliberately uh, give our attention and give our focus to that thing and deliberately say no to other things. When Israel came into the land, they needed to say no to all these other things that were potentially interesting and potentially alluring. And, we ha and they had to say yes to God. Negatively, this involves a refusal to allow the mind and the affections to be seized by other preoccupations. Reading scripture thus involves a mortification, so a putting to death, of the free-range intellect. A free-range intellect, your mind that wanders, it says, says this, which believes itself to be at liberty to devote itself to all manner of sources of fascination. Let's read that again. Reading scripture, paying attention to God, involves putting to death or mortifying, killing this free-range mind that believes itself to be at liberty to devote itself to any topic of interest in front of us. Think about this on your phone, on your computer, as you drive and you see billboards in your home. There's all kinds of things that are vying for your attention. We have marketers in this room who know that like this is every second on your device is monetized. Every second of our attention is monetized. And in fact, our most valuable resource as human beings is our attention and time. What are you paying attention to? Now, not every single thing we pay attention to other than God is evil. A lot of them are really good. But we have to limit ourselves as human creatures and put away some things so that we can focus on the thing that is ultimate, the thing that is best. Well, he goes on, one of the diseases of which the reader must be healed is that of instability. We need to be rooted. We need to be stable. Lack of exclusive concentration. This is something that we need to be healed from. And part of the reader's being made holy, sanctification, is an ordered simplification 
of desire so that reading can really take place. Let me give an example. If I'm going and I'm, I'm trying to prepare for something or I'm trying to study or I'm trying to read, I can have my laptop open with uh, sports playing in the background. I can have my phone next to me where I could get on Twitter at any point. I could be in a coffee shop where I've got all these things around me. Okay, how well am I going to be able to read if I have all these potential sources of distraction that are here, um, all manner of sources of fascination? How well am I going to be able to read? Not very well. How we set up our schedule. We have to put to death what God was calling Israel to do was to put to death all these other things, to tear down these altars and to pay attention to him, to remember, to reflect. And we, we fail to do this. And so I want to give us some time to think through this. Um, our activity here is just some reflection. I've got some prompts, some questions on the board, and I want us to spend some time in silence. I want us to spend some time in silence, and I want us to think about what it is that's distracting us from God. What is distracting you from God? And so I'd invite you, if you have a writing utensil, if you have a notepad, if you have a phone, if you, whatever it is, to um, reflect and maybe write some of these things down. What is distracting you from God, and can you, can you get rid of it? How will you specifically do so? The next slide, I want to say this. If you can't get rid of it, like my kids. My kids. Well, how will you rethink its place in light of Christ, in light of life with Christ? And how specifically will you do so? What's distracting you from God? Can you get rid of it? How will you do so? If you can't get rid of it, how will you rethink how to use it in your life with Christ? So let's reflect on that for a few minutes. A few other prompts to might help if you're stuck. What do you find yourself thinking about in your free time? Where does your money freely, freely flow? If it's taken away from you, what would make you most anxious or unsettled? And then think specifically, how will, you, how will you cut this out of your life if you need to? How will you make room for God? So here's our next prompt I want to think through. How will you specifically pay more and better attention to God? What exactly will you do when, how, set a goal for yourself. How will you spend more and better attention to God? Maybe you're already trying to spend, a, 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 give your attention to God uh, regular times every day or throughout the week, but you do it in a distracted manner or it falls behind or you do it while you drive. How can you move everything else to the side and give exclusive, undivided attention to God to remember his word, to remember his truths, to listen to him as he speaks. I want to give a few examples of my own life. Um, so one example is just daily devotions. Um, there's, there's an app you can use. For some people, that's great. It's just like you can have calendars on your phone. And all, if I do anything on, on 
a computer or on a tablet, like I'll get distracted. It's just, it happens. I have to do as much analog on paper as possible. So um, a, a dear friend in, in here, Brent Durrett, built me a, a prayer kneeler that I've been longing for for a while. Um, I posted about this. I'm just so, I'm geeked out. It's kind of a fun thing for me. But like, it's made of wood. I use a paper book and I turn away from my desk and from my computer and I face a different direction and I get rid of those distractions. I have to do that to pray. Or literally, I've been in the middle of prayer before and like open Twitter and like 20 minutes later, I'm like, what's going on? Where am I? Who's God? You know, I, that's, so for me, that's a very specific, you know, I wasn't like in sin. I wasn't like, you know, out gambling instead of praying and loving my family. It's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be that big. Um, it can be something as simple as, hey, get away from the distractions and focus and attention on God. Um, a second one that's more something I can't get rid of, um, a thousand times I've failed. I blew it earlier this week as a parent um, in a, uh, I think it was, was it Thursday morning? Uh, man, just lost my cool. Uh, with my daughter, and I was I was gutted. I was wrecked over that, and um, just lost my patience. And it's compounding factors. Um, I went to bed too late the night before because I was being selfish with my time. I was cranky, um, and this old uh, sin in me of wanting to control and overpower a situation is what directed my actions as a parent in the moment. How can I repurpose my parenting? Well, one of the ways I can repurpose my parenting around a life with Christ is to actually stop doing these other things that are more self-focused, like entertainment-focused, and get to bed on a decent time. And the second thing is, I can see my inner, every interaction with my daughter and my son and my wife as an opportunity to be poor in spirit, to, be, to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's what Jesus is characterized. That's how I need to be characterized. Even in discipline, even in teaching someone under me, my daughter, how to act and how not to act, bearing with her in patience. Jesus cooked breakfast for the one that denied him, we heard last week. I can be patient with the one who has an emotional fit at the age of two. Um, and God has mercy for me in that, but I can start to rethink when I'm, other distractions are, are um, pulling me away and I'm not able to give my focus to the task of parenting and give my focus to the task of imaging Christ in the moment, um, I can actually remove those things and refocus myself. So these are a couple ways. Like one is like I actually sinned against my family and against God in the way that I acted towards my child and I needed to repent and I did repent of that. Um, told my wife about it, apologized to God, prayed for his for, for his is a renewal, and I need to refocus my attention on God, the things of God as a parent. And the other one is, you know, seemingly innocuous, but actually is wrecking our brains, and it's that we are distracted by our devices. And it's not necessarily sin, but it's like you need to focus on God when you pray, right, and when you read. So those are two examples in my life. Maybe you have some other things that are coming to mind for you. I prayed hard last night and this morning that God would just bring things to your mind. And the last question on that final slide um, that I had for us is, um, who will you talk to personally about this to encourage you to follow through? I would encourage you that if something came to mind on either side of the spectrum, whatever it is, that you find one person 
that you trust, who knows Jesus, and that you tell them it can be clergy, it can be, I'd encourage you to find someone other than clergy, um, to find someone that is walking through similar things maybe, that knows you really well, um, and tell them and say, will you hold me accountable? Will you follow up with me in a week and ask me how I'm doing with this? And let's pay attention to God. Let's focus on God and let's put away the other things. So God, I pray, God, that you would um, guide our hearts, guide our minds, help us to love you and to serve you. Thank you for the opportunity to um, talk about these things, to work on these things. And I pray that your law would be written on our hearts and not the law of the world. I'd ask you all to join me. There's a prayer here of self-dedication. I'd love for us to pray together. This last slide, uh, Archbishop William Temple wrote this, and it's, it's beautiful. All together, let's pray this. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated to you, and then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people, through our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.